Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. In today's episode, we speak with Dan Rodriguez, a Cuban-American uh, with a diverse background, um, a man who has uh, lived in other parts of the world, in Japan, um, who has spent time in India with his uh, wife and his two kids. And uh, Dan really uh, gives us a unique perspective on what it's like to grow up in the Latino community uh, and to, to really be a part of a, a more diverse uh, group of people who are trying to um, become more Americanized. To, to fit into this, uh, this kind of melting pot of America. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, this is uh, Carmen Farino, and welcome to the second edition of the Allies uh, podcast. With me uh, today is Dan Rodriguez. Dan is a musician and writer and IT professional who has lived in a number of different parts of the world. And um, we want to talk today about the experiences that people have um, around dealing with um, diverse people. Um, the Allies podcast is one of those where we're going to talk about awkward things, where we're going to bring up difficult conversations. And Dan and I have known each other going on 35 years. Um, we met at Rutgers University. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, this is a weird uh, kind of science experiment that we're doing here. Um, the kind of the roots of it came from just the idea that people aren't listening. Um, that it's awkward to feel like you're ignorant about situations. And I know you and I um, have that kind of in common that um, we don't like to be awkward. Uh, <laughs> we try to try to avoid that uh, in our lives. But this is an unusual set of circumstances. So um, maybe we can start with, um, you know, how'd you grow up? Where did you, um, where did you live when you were a kid? Um, how did you get this appreciation for kind of diversity and different people? Right, sure. So yeah, I was born in uh, Brooklyn, but I have no memory of living there. We moved to New Jersey, Central Jersey, pretty soon after. So I grew up mostly in West Windsor, New Jersey, uh, right next to Princeton. Princeton Junction is part of West Windsor. So I mean, I grew up, you know, I was probably the only brown kid around for 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 miles. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, you know, I loved it there. It was kind of your idyllic suburb, <clears throat> lots of space to run around, lots of grass. And, uh, you know, like I think like maybe a lot of kids, I never really knew I was different at first. You know, I was just kind of hanging out with everyone else. But uh, where, where, where did you notice that... Um that your, your family's background and kind of their history and the fact that, um, you know, they came from different parts of the world was different than the, the people that you were living next to. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I guess you could tell mainly by going into, going into your friend's house, right. Versus going into, into my house, you know, so the, you know, the house would smell different, right. Different kind of food is mm -hmm. being cooked. You know, the parents would speak in different accents and whatnot. And it's funny, too. I think I realized later that I had a lot of Asian friends because, you know, there weren't I was probably the only Latino around. But there's, you know, a, 
large, slightly larger number of Chinese, Korean, Indians around. And I think I always kind of gravitated towards them. And it took years for me to realize. I think they, I think the thing that attracted me was that they were there. They had a similar experience to me. Like I would go into their house, and their house would smell different, you know. Mm-hmm. And their their parents would speak in a in an accent, and you know, we had that thing in common. Now, where did your parents grow up? Cuba. So my parents are from Cuba. They came to the United States. They already had four kids. Uh, I was the first one born in the U.S. and one born later. So you know, my father, big believer in the American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and to him, uh, education was everything. He was always very, um, put a lot of stress on education, which really, you know, as a kid annoyed me a lot, but, uh, you know, later I can kind of understand where he was coming from to him. Education was the, was the, the big equalizer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he recognized that as a, as a Latino, he was, he was an electrical engineer working for mobile oil. And as a Latino, he'd have to work twice as hard, you know, do, you know, twice as better as his white counterparts in order to be given the same amount of respect was sure. his feeling. And so I, I think his idea of how to protect us, prepare us for the world was to insist on on education. And you also, um, he traveled around a lot, right? And he was... He, he, he did. He did. It was like when I was... When I was uh, Starting junior high, he got a long-term assignment in Tokyo, and we ended up joining him there. So it was two years in Tokyo, followed by about three years in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So I did the two years in Tokyo. Saudi Arabia didn't have uh, adequate education opportunities for me, so I ended up going to boarding school back at, back to New Jersey um, for ninth through eleventh grades. Mm-hmm. Well, wh- uh, tell me a little bit about the the two years in Japan. What was that like? Um, did you feel? Um, completely isolated? Did you feel like you were out of your element? Was it a, was it kind of a, an inflection point for you in terms of, you know, kind of how you fit into the world? I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't. I mean, cause the one thing is I went to an American school. It was literally called the American school in Japan, mm-hmm. ASIJ. Um, so, I mean, in that one respect, I was a foreigner just like everyone else in mm-hmm. Japan, you know, Japan being a very, you know, um, homogenous society. So, I mean, I've heard. So basically, I don't. I don't have any any memories of being discriminated further in Japan because of the color of my skin. I have mm-hmm. heard later from friends of mine, uh, people of color, who, as an adult, did not, you know, have such a nice experience in Japan, where they felt they were not treated as well as their white counterparts. I I didn't really feel that. Maybe it was youth, or maybe it just wasn't happening. I don't know. Yeah. But basically, there were three ways as a foreigner or a gaijin at the time you'd be you'd be treated i mean the largest one was indifference a lot of times people just didn't care yeah um the the most minor one is the this was back in uh, 80 to 82 so there were still some world war ii vets still alive so you get some drunk world war ii vets yelling at you sometimes on the subway <laughs> but but otherwise um you get treated like a rock star you know people would be like oh, gaijin, gaijin. you know and like they'd see you and point and high school girls would giggle and come up to you and nervously say haro haro and you know it was just kind of mm-hmm. funny so i got you know i got a lot of that too as, as as much as my white friends so i didn't really feel any different from the other americans that were there you know but i mean that's a, that's kind of a that's a cool it's a cool thing when people admire the fact that you're different than them it's yeah, nice right. nice feeling um yeah how was it when you uh, when you went to boarding school? 
was that a uh, was that a big change going from uh, the American school in in Tokyo? Oh, it was. I mean, it was a boarding school. It was a you know, it was a kind of like when an old old uh, old money, a lot of old money rich people living there. Uh, my father's company paid for it because because they were overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was you know that's it's it, it's it's hard to say because I was also the start of high school and and big part of high school is everyone rags on each other, which is, which is all right, you know, but I mean, like people would like to make a, make a big point of the fact that I was Cuban, you know, like my first nickname was Cuban. <laughs> Literally, people well, that's creative. Me, hey Cuban. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes it got sorted to cube. Um, and then there was this whole fascination with my last name where eventually, you know, everyone called me Guez was my, was my nickname. Um, hmm. But again, I mean, I was used to growing up around white people, so it didn't really feel that 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 different for me. It was interesting. My my freshman year, I was in the dorm, and across from me there was a kid from the Bronx, Zach Vasquez, who was there on a scholarship. And he was like, you know, he was like your total urban kid. Like he had, he came with a strobe light, and he would do his break dancing to Planet Rock and everything. And everyone loved mm-hmm. like watching him do his break dancing and and. Uh, and our experiences were very different. I think. I mean, he didn't actually didn't, didn't last long. I, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to know him that well, even though he lived across the street. Just because I felt that even though he's the other Latino, he and I didn't really have much in common. I, did, I didn't break dance. I didn't listen to Planet Rock. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, so so when did music become so important, and did that help you um, kind of bridge gaps? Hmm. Good question. I guess, I mean, music's always been important, I think. I mean, my first, my first, uh, my first pop music obsession was Jim Croce when I was about four. Hmm. I think my dad brought home one of his albums, the second album with Bad Bad Leroy Brown on it. And yeah. I just freaking loved that song. And I would sit there and read all the lyrics and sing along. And I actually remember, I think when he died, I was four years old. I remember my sister hmm. coming in and telling me in the morning and I was crying. Oh, is Jim Croce's dead, you know? But uh, you and what three other four-year-olds, maybe? I mean, <laughs> not a lot maybe. of four-year-olds. They're really destroyed. But I remember that album. That guy. I I just thought he looked cool. He had that mustache, yeah. and uh, he looked cool. And I just loved his songs. And and then you know, and then later on, later on, I learned the Beatles and this and that. I mean, the thing is, my my parents, um, my dad liked music, but I, I had this thing about wanting wanting to have to, to really assimilate into America. So like he didn't, mm. he didn't really allow much Spanish speaking in the house. Uh, I mean, the story, my Spanish is terrible. The story that I, that I tell and I was sticking to it is that when he came to the U S he had four kids and a wife that didn't speak any English. So he forbade everyone to speak Spanish so that they would learn English. And that's the environment that I was born and grew up into. So wow. I didn't really learn much English, you know, part of that's, a, you know, BS maybe, but, but that's, but, uh, but That's I mean, did you, did mm-hmm. they talk about their the the Cuban culture? Did they did they talk about what they were? You know, did they that they missed people that they that they miss or was it really kind of like oh nope we're all in we're American and we're gonna we're gonna do this? I mean, not so much. I mean, there's I mean they 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 had you know they would they would play you know some of the salsa music that they liked. Um, mm-hmm. Here were some of the um, records they had, and we had we had. Uh, relatives my my aunt was living in brooklyn so we'd see them a lot and you know and there was the food of course 
I mean, my mom learned to cook lots of American recipes, but she still cooked all the Cuban stuff that she knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't feel they were trying to deny their Cubanness necessarily, but they also really wanted to embrace and assimilate the 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 you know middle class suburban Americanness. So, so where how do you how do you pivot on that? How do you um, when you grow up and you're you know Latino, but um, your parents are Americanizing you, and so you've you've got you know you. you you are that you're, you're an American guy, um, who's maybe, you know, a little browner than other people and a little bit, you know, lighter than other people. Um, where do you, where do you see that, uh, in terms of race relations, where do you see it in terms of your day-to-day life? Is it something that you think about a lot? Is it something that just kind of every once in a while pops up? Um, or, or is it, you know, the kind of depending on the situation? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, because when I was when I was a kid, I I didn't really think about it at all. You know, I wasn't really, you know, the Cuban stuff was just kind of there. I didn't, you know, I didn't speak Spanish. My parents would speak to me in Spanish. I'd answer in English, that kind of thing. I liked some of the Cuban food, didn't like some of the Cuban food. But really, I was just a a typical kid in the mid 70s where I wanted to read my comic books and, you know, and uh, listen to the Beatles and whatever, you know. Well, Um, I mean, Superman, there's nothing more American than Superman. Yeah, right. Superman, Superman, Charlie Brown, and and like uh, I mean, I guess it was kind of I. I mean, in one hand, I'm kind of I'm kind of grateful that I that I didn't necessarily have the baggage of of having to represent a culture. You know, mm-hmm. I could just be I could just kind of be me. You know, yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of the things that I didn't really care about, like it was kind of like as I got older, I began to think, oh, that salsa music's pretty nice. You know, or mm-hmm. you, know, you begin to realize some of these things and. And, uh, oh, maybe I should learn how to make some of these Cuban recipes or that kind of thing. But at the time, I was just kind of interested in being like any other, any other kid. Um, did you, did you, um, did you find that other people identified you differently or that other people were trying to sort you? I mean, I know we talked a little bit about, um, you know, when you were a janitor, uh, at, at, uh, Rutgers. Yeah. Right. Um, right. But I mean, people, t- sometimes it, it, it strikes me that people try to sort us, yeah. you know, as individuals when we're not even thinking about it. Yeah. So, I mean, like, first of all, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I, that, um, that I feel I've been, I've been very lucky that I haven't experienced much overt racism. Like most of the, the, any overt racism I've experienced has been very benign and mm-hmm. the rest has been very subtle. And then also, like you're saying, there's probably a lot of stuff that I just never even knew about. Like, I have no idea how people perceive me. Um, I mean, one of my first memories as a kid was in, in, uh, first grade some some kid calling me the n-word and mm-hmm. i remember just being confused at the time like somehow i actually knew what that meant but uh, i was confused at the time i was thinking well you know i'm not black i'm cuban again confused what do i know as a first grader mm-hmm. but i didn't really have to deal with it all that much i mean and a lot of times it was something nice i mean like like uh you know i got a, a bit of a fro and uh the only time i remember getting pointed out is uh some of the girls in third grade at the bus stop on a windy day saying, Oh, Danny's so lucky his hair doesn't move in the wind. <laughs> you know? There you go. Hey, they're right. That's true. Well, I mean, um, but, but it has happened, right? I mean, there have been people yeah, yeah. that have decided to lay something on you. Um, it happens more as you get older. Right. So, I mean, like the story you're referring to was, uh, was, uh, summer break at college where I needed a, I needed a, 
you know, I needed a summer job just to, to make some cash. And the only one I could find basically was basically being the janitor at the, at the Rutgers bookstore. And, uh, so there was this older woman, Hildy, who worked there. And one day in the lunchroom, I had just gotten done cleaning the lunchroom bathroom. She comes, she looks at my, my name tag and she says, so your name is Dan? I said, yep, yeah, yeah, that's me. She said, that's funny. You don't look like a Dan. You look more like a, like a Pedro. So I was like, okay, <laughs> it's fine. You know, go away, but whatever. Um, and then the funny thing is then a few months later, um, during winter break, I get hired there to work at the textbook um, buyback counter. And this time I'm working directly with Hildy. So she and I are side by side every day. She has no recollection of me or this encounter or anything. And then one day she comes up to me and she says, Dan, are you Italian? And I said, no, I'm, I'm Cuban. She goes, really? The women in the office thought you were Jewish. I thought you were Italian, but you don't look Cuban at all. So I'm like, okay, great. So I'm thinking that's that's how it is, right? With the mop, I'm a Pedro, but if I'm handling money and wearing nicer clothes, I'm Italian or Jewish. And wow. you know, since so we get the idea that yes, people are making up, you know, I mean, there's people who were, who were friends of mine that I found out, you know, that that before they got to know me, you know, they'd be like, well, you know, if I had seen you walking down the street, I might have crossed the street and walked on the other side, <laughs> you know, before they got to know me. So like, you don't know how you're going to come across. Um, well, that's, that's funny. I mean, the only thing I'll say about the first time I saw you um, was that I thought you were older and you're actually like two and a half months younger than me, but you know, you did have a really cool goatee, which I could not yeah. pull off. Um, that'll, that'll do that right. may have been it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> there's, I'm going to go back to the music thing again, because there is something, I mean, you're, you're a very good musician. You have a um, one of the best um, kind of patterns in front of an audience. You're always charming um, and quick with whatever needs to be said. How did you get that way? Is that the result of bouncing around to different environments and having to fit in? Um, because that seems to me, I've noticed that um, there are certain people that are really good at being chameleons that way to, to connect with an audience or connect with a group of people um, to, to make them like them or, um, or to appreciate them. That's interesting. I have, I have no idea. Cause I mean, I've, I've always been a quiet kid a, a lot of times where um, most times when I get into a new situation, I spend a lot of time just kind of being quiet and, and observing and saying less. Um, and a lot of that, whatever is born out of insecurity or whatever, you know, a lot of times you're sitting there and, you know, it's those kind of moments where after you leave, you're like, Oh, I could have said this, I could have said that. And, you know, you didn't cause you were all scared, but I was always, I was always kind of quiet. And the, I mean, the first time I, I remember getting up in front of a large enough group of people to play, I was, I think a senior in high school, mm -hmm. I was petrified. And, uh, we were doing it in our little audit, in our auditorium in the, in the high school. And, when I got up there, first thing I noticed, the stage lights were blinding me and I couldn't see anybody. So I thought, oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> I can just pretend they're not there because <laughs> I can't see anybody. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's just something you develop after uh, over time. Um, you know, you, you read a lot of books. You watch a lot of movies. You know, this is how cool people act. <laughs> maybe you try to mimic it. I, you know, I don't know. But I mean, I. I mean, to be honest, it's something that I've often wondered about myself. There's certain there's a certain switch that gets flipped where I can be 
between me being very quiet and me being very talkative, and I don't have not yet figured out where that switch resides. Does it does it have to do with the people that you trust or the people you don't trust? Is it the context of of um, of the individuals? So if if it's an awkward environment or if it's a environment where you 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 feel like it's um it's maybe not as um, accepting or or maybe as more critical that you that you want to be more quiet. Um, it, it could be. Um, but it's hard to say because there's certain people that even if it's when it comes to people that I've just met for the first time in my life, sometimes there's someone I've just met and I will click immediately with that person mm-hmm. and we can just talk and talk and talk. And there's other people that I've known for five years and worked closely with and I had never been able to yeah. reach, reach that, uh, get into that comfortable zone, you know? Yeah. So, well, well let me, let me switch gears a little bit because I yeah, think, um, I notice, um, you know, you've, you've got kids and um, your wife has a different background than you. Um, yes. She was she's uh, Indian, and she grew up in Belgium, uh, right? Netherlands. Netherlands. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, about navigating uh, a Cuban Indian uh, Dutch environment. Um, <laughs> How is um, how does all of that blend? Uh, and I say that from you know an Italian American who's uh, you know English and Scottish mom, you know who grew up in Alaska, wound up living in South Philly in the '60s. So that culture clash I heard all about. Right. Um, you know, a woman who grew up you know riding motorcycles across Alaska to go into mm-hmm. South Philly was a lot. Um, <laughs> what's it like um, bringing all of those cultures together? And and how do you think your your kids? Uh, benefit from that so that's interesting I, I mean i don't know i mean i can i can only say like personally i think um like the comment before about having a lot of asians friend i've always been friends i've always been comfortable i've always enjoyed having friends from different cultural backgrounds and getting to know people from different cultural backgrounds um indian culture can be a hard one to break into for non-indian you know i mean i think we all know some everyone probably knows you know some interracial couple that had problem with the Indian parents or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very lucky that, um, like, like I said, my wife grew up in the Netherlands. Her, her father traveled around a lot. He's a really worldly guy and, uh, he's very cool. I didn't really have an issue with him and the family I've met have all been very welcoming. Again, you don't really know what happens when you're not there or what's been said. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but it was interesting. One of the things that, that, my wife says um, made her father feel better is that she felt that unlike other white people, since I'm a Latino, um, then I have, I have more in common with, with, uh, you know, cause Indian families can be very tight. They'll come over, they'll stay for three months or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, you know, that I guess in their mind, the stereotypical white family might bulk at, but someone who's Latino, that's got a stronger sense of family bonds. Um, would have less of an issue with and that's something that's more in common and i suppose there's some 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 truth to that um now with, also, i'm sorry go ahead i was just going to say that the um that you know your your kids get to get to benefit from um you know travel they get to see yes, different parts of the world um and it it's got to make you you feel like um like you're setting a broader context right i mean they get to see parts of the world that other people normally wouldn't see um, do you think that makes them better equipped in this world to have those types of experiences? Yeah, I would, I would imagine. So I, I certainly hope so. I mean, they've got to, you know, they got to, we go to India like about once a year and we, you know, we'll spend at the, at the minimum three weeks there. 
um, at a time. And so they've, you know, they're, they've got to see how, how other people in other parts of the world live and be comfortable in it and enjoy it, you know, mm-hmm. and enjoy the different foods and the different sights and sounds and smells. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I would hope it'd make them better equipped. Um, changing gears a little bit, I also kind of find it helpful that, I mean, like that, uh, even though she's Indian, I'm Latino, the kids, the kids, we have similar skin tones, you know, so the, yeah. the kids, the kids look like they both come from us. You know, we don't have any issues mm-hmm. of like, you know, people like thinking that's not my child, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I had, uh, I have dark hair, Sandy has dark hair and we had two blonde haired kids and it was, it was funny. It's just, yeah. just funny for people to come up to us and like babysitting. No, there are, <laughs> sorry. It's, it's yeah. a genetic thing. Um, do you, do you worry about, um, them growing up in North America? Do you worry about prejudice? Do you worry about, um, having to navigate that world? I, I worry, I worry, I worry some, but, um, but, uh, you know, I, I worry some, but I, but I feel like, I remember there was a Time Magazine cover, I don't know, like 20 years ago or something that had some computer generated face of the, of, of the, what the Americans, average Americans going to look like in some number of decades. Mm-hmm. And it was this kind of brown, slightly Asian looking face of just, um, you know, and, and I think we are kind of going there where these kind of things are kind of, kind of more the norm. I mean, I mean, like you see all, 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 all this, all these things on the news of divisions and whatnot, but a lot of times when I get down to, um, just kind of meeting, you know, people who live in different parts of the country, even if it's a country I think is lily white, I'll always find that, uh, that whoever I'm related to or whoever I'm talking to has got friends in school that are biracial or, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of everywhere. It's, so I, I feel it's kind of a natural, natural progression. Um, the, and, and there are tears, right? I mean, you're better off if you're Asian than if you're African-American in this country, unfortunately, right? You're, mm-hmm. you know, you're better off if you're Asian than you're Latino. So I mean, they have the they have the Asian thing in their favor. They have my last name, which maybe is less in their favor. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I mean, that's, um, that's an interesting. I've never really thought about it in terms of um, the tears. So, so why do you think it's why do you think the tears are so uh, abrupt? Why do you think African Americans, maybe even different than Africans, um, are are treated so badly? Why is it, why is it that they've somehow been, you know, relegated to this lowest tier or this lowest rung? I know that's, that's, that's rough. You know, something, it's something that I I had always observed, but I didn't really know anything behind it. And recently, did you see, I haven't finished watching it, but there was this really cool, uh, frontline, a cool series called Asian Americans. Um, and, uh, one of the things that they mentioned is that I think it was sometime in the mid sixties or whatever, there was a law in, in the U S that, they would um, only accept grant visas to to Asians, you know, that had a certain level of education or a certain expertise. Hmm. So, you know, all of these highly educated and skilled Asians flooded in from from China, J- Japan, Korea, India, and they came here. And because they were highly educated and highly skilled, they did well, and they were all kind of elevated, you know, in American propaganda as the good immigrant, right? Hmm. Um, whereas you've got 
African-Americans whose ancestors were brought here as slaves and then had to live, deal with systemic um, racism throughout their entire life, lynchings, you know, no equal opportunities in schooling or, or in employment. And uh, you end up where we are now. Um, Do you remember an example where that, that hit home with you? Do you remember the earliest example where you realized that that was something that happened here? Uh, in terms of what, in terms of, in terms of, of like the stratification in terms of, you know, there's a, you know, if you're, if you're an African-American kid, um, you know, people, people treat you differently. Or if there's, you know, do you, do you have an example of that? I mean, for me, it was, um, it was in the South and there was an African, uh, American kid that, uh, was fishing next to me and he couldn't, he didn't go into the store to get really? soda. He's like, oh yeah, no, I don't, I don't go in there. So I just got him a soda. Wow. I don't know why you don't go in there. Um, he's like, that's just not, you know, it's not a good thing for me to do. Um, so it was funny, you know, I didn't know what that was. Um, but I also remember, um, you know, with my kid, Alec came home on the bus one day and some kid called him the N word and really? he actually came in and, uh, and said to Sandy, like I, somebody called me this. And he didn't know what it was. He didn't never heard the word. So we had to explain, you know, that it was a bad word and then, uh, called the, uh, mother of the kid up and, um, the mother laughed and said, well, he's not. So what's the problem? Right. Like, I mean, you know, so, so those things stick with my kids, you know, that, and I remember those instances where I was brought up cold and I, for some reason thought in 1990 that by 2020 things would be dramatically better. I don't know why I thought that. Um, so that's why I'm asking, do you remember something like that that happened in your childhood where you're like, huh, I guess I would have thought it would have been better by now, whether it was you or, or somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think, I don't know. I mean, like growing up, like obviously I remember, I remember being called the N word myself. Um, that was back in first grade. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure that I've ever seen. I mean, like I said, everything that I've had has been subtle or not so, you know, um, not so, you know, pretty minor. And a lot of times you just kind of, sometimes I think I don't even notice the subtleties. Like sometimes it had to be, it had to be pointed out to me sometimes, but I, like I had a, a boss, uh, when I was just out of college, it was really, really, uh, a really nice woman. And at that time I'd, I'd been pulled over a couple of times for no good reason. Yeah. And I kind of didn't think much of it. And she was the one who kind of pointed out to me. It's like, what the hell's going on? Why do they keep pulling you over? You know, they're, they're obviously racist cops. And it didn't even occur to me, you know, that that's what's yeah. going on. I was like, huh, I think you're right. You know, why are they pulling me over? Hey, wait a minute. No, I, I mean that. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you an awkward, awkward question. So, um, you've, I would assume always been upper middle class professional family, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Had international travel, um, had experiences around the world. Um, married another professional also well-traveled right multinational right. experiences mm -hmm. does that insulate you because i i feel like growing up in a, a let's say a solidly middle class maybe even slightly lower middle class um working you know blue collar family in a blue collar neighborhood um it was a lot more raw there's a lot less subtlety right you know, mm -hmm. uh, in language, uh, in behavior, um, 
I, you know, I felt like that was up close in my face. Is it a matter of, of social status or, or economic status? Yeah, that definitely plays into it. I think for sure. Um, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, growing up, we were, I mean, my dad, I think did, did well, but he had, he had six kids. So he was very, we lived a very frugal life. So, mm-hmm. so, um, at the kid, I remember we were always complaining about how cold it was in the winter because he wouldn't turn the heat up and we didn't, mm-hmm. they, were, they never turned on the air conditioner and we never got cable TV and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we lived in a nice neighborhood and, uh, the schools were good in the town. Um, and yeah, and, and despite my protestations at the time, I mean, yeah, the education was important, right? I mean, having that diploma is a, is a, is an equalizer. What does that do? What is it? Because my, my parents, that was the only rule for me. They didn't care what else I did. You were going to college. You will right. have an education. Um, that was the only time that I knew I would get in trouble was if I wasn't paying attention to that. So why was it so important? Is it the equalizer? Is it the intellectual side of it? Is it kind of a, a is it a protection? Yeah, I think it's a protection. It's, a, it's I think it becomes a key, you know, I mean, just being able to put on your, on your resume that you've graduated college, even if you've learned nothing in that school, that's going to make you good at this job. It's a key that opens the door for you. You know, it mm-hmm. makes it easier for you to get, to get into that, into that job. than somebody doesn't have that, those, those letters, you know? Yeah. And whether that's fair or not, it's, it's a bigger, bigger question, but I think that's how it is. So, so in this climate, what, what do you tell your kids? What do you talk about? You know, do they, do they know what's going on right now? Do they have any sense of, you know, with COVID being at home and, you know, any of the other stuff, do they ask anything to the, cause it's a, it's a strange time to, you know, to be around. It is. They really don't. I mean, they my kids are eight and six and they're pretty young, eight, eight and six, you know I mean? They're, mm-hmm. they're kids. They like to play and um, they understand a bit about COVID just, just cause you know, we're home and not going to school, obviously. Um, they have no idea of anything that's going on right now with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and uh, and I don't think they even understand the concept of race. Like, I think if someone were to call them the N word, they would have to ask me, "What does that word mean?" Mm-hmm. Or somehow I knew, I knew what that word meant <clears throat> yeah. when I was in first grade. They they wouldn't know. Um, and I don't think they even understand, um, you know, the the different the different races and. And uh, I mean, though it is interesting, just to today, like uh, recently, my daughter's been pointing out various cartoon characters she likes that are that are like her. Like so, Tiana mm-hmm. from the the what's it the the Frog and the Princess, the one that was mm-hmm. reimagined yeah, yeah. in New Orleans with the Black Princess. Yeah. She's like, oh, Tiana's like me because her skin is dark like me and her hair is curly like me, and she likes green. Oh. You know, but then also Ariel, the Little Mermaid's like her because she likes green. Yeah, yeah, oh, she likes green. That's the issue. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> No, I mean it's Alec. A, when Alec, when he came home, would talk about the kids who had um, a darker tan, right? Yeah, and you know, I mean, if that's the context for it, I think you know, and it's one of many other attributes. I think that's that's really kind of a testament, right? I mean, that's that's how you you try to raise people is that they're not doing that. But it is a bit of a shock when you find that other people don't do that, right? <laughs> I guess if if you look at everything that's happening now. Um, when do you start to talk to them? Um, you know, I had to talk to Alec when he was seven, right? 
Jude, I don't remember having that conversation. Um, but he was always following on the heels of Alec and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Alec helped talk. When, when do you, when do you think the, it's helpful to have those conversations? I don't know. I mean, like right now, I'm not sure if it would be helpful, like if, mm-hmm. to have the conversation with them right now, because I'm not sure they would understand. Um, and, and, and I think I'd have to explain so much else in background for them to get the context. But, um, but did you, did you think it was going to be like this? Did you think, you know, 20, 30 years ago that we'd be having these types of issues? No, I thought it'd be much better than it was. Right. That's the, so, that's the so then what happened? Why did this, why is it like this now? That's a, that's a damn good question. I don't know. I mean, is it, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Is it, is it a, is it an income inequality thing? Is it a racism plus class structure? I, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it, I, I feel like a lot of this threat stems from middle-class middle-aged white people mm-hmm. who, you know, have slipped from that, you know, I'm going to be better than my father's, I'm going to do better than my father's generation or my parents' generation. And, you know, my kids will do better, et cetera. And they found that they're actually struggling harder, that they've right. lost steam. And that, um, you know, media outlets that, that, you know, push that, you know, it's created this, um, this group of people who feel like somebody's taking something from them. That's mm-hmm. hard to get past that yeah. level of ignorance. Um, does social media, things like that make it worse? I think so. I think, I mean, I mean, social media can be a wonderful place, but it can also be, you know, such a horrible, horrible place mm-hmm. where, you know, misinformation can spread like, like weeds. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point you make. I think, uh, I mean, I think the decline in our education, in our education system, and I think the, the loss of blue collar jobs to both, uh, globalization and technology have, mm-hmm. uh, put a lot of people on the outs, right. And they put a lot of white people on the outs and who's left to, to blame. Well, there's still, there's still the, there's still the African-Americans to pick on, right. Yeah, I mean that that's the part that I I'm um I'm trying to figure out again why it, why with all of that it's the African Americans that get hammered. Um you know, I can see feeling displaced, you know, if you're a white guy and I can see the you know the whatever the browning of America or that as you said kind of that moving to the you know slightly, you know, Asian kind of slightly more um brown person you know, over generations, but, but that the heat that it brings back on African-American people just seems unusual. Right. I mean, wouldn't it be toward all, I mean, maybe it is, maybe I'm just not asking the right thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, today you've got the, you know, we've got the, the immigration problem too, right? The, yeah. The well, wall. let me ask you about that as a, as a Latino, did, what, how do you, how do you um, see the immigration uh, debate that's going on. I mean, how have you, uh, how have you engaged in that when they're putting kids in cages and they're, you know, and you hear this type of rhetoric, uh, are you surprised by some of the people that have that, that opinion? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I am and I'm, and I, and I'm, and I'm not, um, 
it's you know for, for for whatever reason the american dream still looms large in in people's minds and they think that you know wherever they are in the world they're going to have a better time of it here and and, and i'd wonder if you if you were to, people who made it here who are legal i wonder what they would say if uh, you polled them you know are they mm-hmm. are they are they better off or not i don't know but uh a lot of times people come and and, and the economy functions because there are people here doing the work that us citizens don't want to do right yeah and uh, I mean, I, I I don't know how to how to how to how to put it intelligently, but it's it's kind of like this this whole system, you know, the the paradigm is changing quickly. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I thought about certain things like um, how I used to worry so much about my phone bill not getting too high, you know, for making international mm-hmm. calls or whatever, and then suddenly that's that's gone, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. no one has to worry about long distance charges anymore. You know, or you know, or where to develop your film? With the things change rapidly, and society doesn't catch up with it. So, so let me ask you about that. Has the technology? Because I believe that the te- the implications of the technology are um, far more dangerous um, than we understand when we approve technologies. So you know, we give kids phones, and you know, you can't. You can try, but you're not going to stop their access to pornography. Um, good luck. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, it was quite difficult for us to find pornography, you know, as as a child, you had to hunt for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I wasn't a great hunter. I'm just saying you had to hunt for it. Um, you know, where now that drops into their lap or, um, you know, divergent opinions, divergent ideas, misinformation. Um, is, is that, have we kind of, you know, completely figured that out yet? Or is, or is there more to come? Uh, especially, you know, your, your kids probably can use an iPad, um, with more fluidity than, than any other generation on the planet. Right. Right. My kids kind of missed iPads. They got phones, but you know, would you, would you give your kid a Facebook, you know, or an Instagram or a, um, TikTok account? Yeah, no, I mean, they're well, they're way too, way too young for that. I mean, they actually have they actually have a version of something called messenger kids where they can actually get some kind of, you know, kitty version with animations of mess of Facebook messenger. Um, mm-hmm. and they can connect with the kids, but they have to be approved by us, you know? Hmm. Um, so we've, we've done that, but I don't know. I always feel, I always feel like this is where science fiction as a genre is useful. I mean, cause mm-hmm. I always feel like, you know, the movies like the Terminator or whatever. Yeah. And there's always some scene where it's like, well, it all happened back in, you know, in the year 1999 when something became active or some doctor so-and-so did this and that, like I feel we're living in those times right now where that's something, <laughs> that something is happening. That's going to cause, like that's going to cause a dystopian apocalyptic uh, world, you know, 30, 40 years from now. It's going to drop right in and we're going to, and, and we won't notice it. Right. I mean, if it, yeah, exactly. If it, yeah. Okay. It's It'll not going to be a catastrophic thing where the, you know, where the machines uh, nuke the earth or anything, but it's going to be more of a slow, gradual thing. Yeah. Well, no, I had I, Jude, uh, you know, Jude stays up uh, on the weekends and watches movies. And uh, one day, one day I came down on a Sunday and he's like, uh, Soylent Green, man. <laughs> Did you, you watch that? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, that was not a good movie. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, those are the types of things that, you know, we grew up. I'm like, I need to show you Doug McClure. Um, you know, there are lots of... Um, there are lots of things that you can, you know, that you can kind of look at and say, well, that's, 
that's what I learned from. Um, you know, that's where I got my my information. Comic books are a big thing with you. Why do you think yeah. you like comic books so much? Uh, especially knowing that your dad was so interested in, you know, being the uh, the, the assimilated American. Um, what's yeah. what's great about comic books? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of been written about Superman in, in the years past that he was the ultimate, you know, ultimate immigrant and uh, and that sort of thing. At the time, it was just kind of cool. Like I said, I mean, I was, I was, you know, I had, I had a, a big internal life. I still have a big internal life, I guess, as a kid. So I mean, like, mm-hmm. um, I, I would, I would love to just kind of get lost in, in these, in these stories of, you know, of, uh, of heroes, um, and get thrilled with the idea of, you know, being, being heroic. Um, I, 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 why, I don't know. what, what why? is it about that, that, that hero myth that is so appealing? Um, what does, what does it, you know, there, you're always there to save the day. There's this, yeah. you know, difficult problem that can't be solved. People are looking around. There's somebody who steps in, you've got mm-hmm. the solution. Why is that so appealing and gratifying? Maybe satisfying. Yeah, I guess. Cause I, cause in life there's always going to be, because in life you don't often win, right? Even when you're right, and it's it's nice to have a fantasy where where someone can come down and just and just do the right thing, you know. You know, back then, like you know, I think you know, even cop shows in, in the '70s and stuff were like that. Like it was, I think it was, I, I don't know how old I was before I realized that. Oh, you mean when they arrest the guy at the end? That's not the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, there's actually a, tr- a trial and he might actually go free again or something. You know? <laughs> like, I didn't understand that. You know, I Lock thought when Columbus said, you know, you're arrested, that's it. You're gone. You know, it was story. so definitive, right? I mean, that was it. Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. what, what, um, my 70s, like, Brock, I was trying to explain the value of the Rockford files to my kids. I'm like, <laughs> it was an epic show. You don't understand. I mean, the guy was smart and clever and he had, you know, these, people who floated underneath the society. It was a, it was this perfect show. Um, what about superhero movies now? Is that the fantasy? Is it the, the overpowering fantasy that, you know, if things are out of control, that there's some way to control the uncontrollables with, you know, nine 11 and, you know, terrorist activities. And now, you know, are we going to see a rise in, in creative superhero things that have to do with plagues and contaminants, you know, five years from now? That's interesting. I mean, I think, I think, I think you might see more of those, right? You know, maybe more zombie movies after COVID. Um, even though we have plenty of zombie movies as it is, but uh, yeah, cool. I mean, I, I think it's just it's it's. I mean, as as a kid, it was more black and white. It was nice to have a fantasy, you know. And, and then reading mm-hmm. as a teenager, you, then you can get more into the into the metaphor, you know, of uh, you know. You know, Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, mm-hmm. is all one big metaphor. Um, but as a, as, a, as a child, obviously, metaphor didn't attract me because I didn't know what metaphor was. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I didn't have the happiest family life necessarily. So maybe it was part mm-hmm. of it was a, escapism. An, an escapism, you know, a place where, you know, you can go and right was right and wrong was wrong. And there was no gray areas. Um, that's a hard, I mean, that that's a hard one to, to navigate. If, you know, if you have a hard 
family life or if you have trauma that happens to you and you've got to reach to outside elements um you know and that's maybe a, an interesting place to kind of dive in what's what do you think this six month period 18 month period however you want to take you know all of the things that have been happening around black lives matter around the COVID crisis around the protests um what do you think that's doing to people what do you think it's doing to society how do you think you we heal from from this and is there a is there an opportunity are you optimistic about that yeah i mean there's an opportunity it's you know things things can things can, can go either way right i mean right now everyone just how like when COVID started you're getting an email from every every corporation that you've ever interacted with in the world about their COVID plan now you're getting one about you know standing up for black lives matter because everyone mm -hmm. has to get the sound bite out um and if it was just that i would feel that that would like last a month or two and then kind of go away and it's back to normal mm -hmm. uh, the protests that are happening and the and the clear display of of continued police brutality during this protests you know that might have more of a lasting effect i'm more hopeful of that um i want to go back to something i want to i want to end you know, with, they have two questions that I, that I really like to end on, but I want to ask this first. Why, and, and what is it about people like you, people like me, some of the other people that you know I'm, I'm trying to interview? Why do we care so much? What is the deal with, why does this become part of our lives, um, these outside things, and, and when you see other people who, who frankly can just ignore it, can just put it aside and not have it be something that bothers them? What's the difference? What makes it, you know, what's the common factor that makes a bunch of us care? I don't know. I think, I think maybe, maybe it's just an, an, an open, an openness and a curiosity, right. That maybe we, that maybe we had uh, growing, you know, all our, all our lives in terms of, in terms of getting to know people from different backgrounds. Right. Mm. So when you're seeing something like this, it's uh and like some, some of these things kind of happening, um, you can tie it to somebody that you knew and liked in your life. You know, mm. it's not it's not happening to just some some random you know other ethnicity, other race, or whatever. You think about you know. But isn't that? I mean, that, we started this conversation, so we have a very diverse group of friends. We have people who are. Latino, we have people who are, you know, first generation from Europe. We have people who are Asian. Um, there are um, there are people who are from um, Pacific Islands. Why is it that if you have a diverse group of friends, if you if you are interested in um, in like you said, interested in, in different people's experiences or different places of the world, does that set you up to be more empathetic? I mean, I guess in the in the in the absence of psychopathy, I would think so, right? Um, or I would hope so. I, I, I it's, it's hard to say because I, I truly, actually, don't understand. I don't understand a lot of the things that I, a lot of the comments that I read on the internet um, of intolerance because I can't. The the one that scares the hell out of me is if somebody doesn't know someone that it happened to, and they don't care. Right. That's right. the single biggest chilling factor for me. If I hear mm -hmm. somebody say that, then there's a breakdown in empathy. Yeah. 
And yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how to get around that. I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's like, I, I've often wondered, you know, if, if you were to, if you were to, you know, you have someone like that, who's unmoved by a news story. If you were to give that, that same story, the Hollywood treatment, you know, you know, yeah. and give it, give it a score and some, some good production value and a, and a slightly yeah. cheesy script, they might be weeping. Right. Yeah. Is, is that do they know they can be that manipulated? Right. You know, so, okay. So here's, here's the, here's the two questions. Okay. Uh, so what, and now what? So, so what? So what that we've lived through, you know, 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, so what that we've had the same scope and scale of protests that the civil rights movement had all happening at once when we're connected in ways we've never been connected before and people are protesting all over the world in uh, support of this. So what? Does it, does it matter? Yeah, I would, I would hope it matters. Um, I mean, now what it's, it's now, now what is the, is the big question? That's the, that's the hard, the hard question to answer. And, uh, and I don't know the answer. I mean, the only answer I think is to, is to keep moving forward and, and be kind, you know, as much as possible. So then I'm, then this is where I'm going to follow up. Uh, you know, that you know, the only, the only skill I have is, is writing. So that's what I do. Um, you know, maybe you can tack on me talking to people too. Um, and that's why I'm doing this. Um, are you going to write a song about this? Because the songs that you feel are that age the hardest are the ones that are in these areas. It's yeah. hard to be earnest and have it age well. Can you write something hard. about this? So I've thought about it, you know, like, uh, I, um, uh, a lot of the music I listened to that I enjoyed, you know, I liked, I liked a good, I always loved a good protest song, um, you know, Ohio or whatever. Yeah. Um, and every time I, every time I would try to write my own protest song, it came out terrible. <laughs> um, there's a couple, there's a couple that I've, that I've, that I've written that I, that I just cringe when I think about and I'll never sing them again. The one, the one, the one thing that one that I did do that I thought was okay was I think I wrote one during during the Gulf War, and I thought, okay, instead of telling, instead of just saying a bunch of words about how this is bad, I just thought I would I would just write a story about uh about a twenty year old woman who is getting ready for a small party in her apartment, and while she's in the shower, her apartment gets bombed. And I can I can write that song, and that song that's the song I you know I wrote that. I don't have a you know, back in the Gulf War, and, I, and I, I still like it. So I'm thinking, okay, that one's okay. So I've been thinking about that because I've been thinking, you know, would I would I be able to write a song about this kind of thing? And I guess that's the approach I would try to take is just to tell a human story. I mean, even as, as much as I love singing songs other people have written about, you know, telling me not to do this or not to do that, uh, I, I can't write them. <laughs> and and, I, I and what, what was the name of that song? It was called On the Night of Laura's Party. Maybe we can... Uh... Maybe we can hear that. Maybe that would be, uh, if you have a recording, it would be nice to be able to hear that. Yeah, sure. We can go out on that. Um, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to end it here. I, I appreciate the, the time and I appreciate the, the insight. You know, I think as, as an individual, you know, I always I lean on you, um, for lots of stuff, not just things like current events. And, and most of that is because you do have a deep interior, uh, you know, world that you that you dive into, and I value it. It's uh, it's it's 
a, a pleasure to be around somebody that creative and, and, and that thoughtful. So I want to thank you for that because, uh, you know, you're one of the first people I thought about with this. Thanks, man. Um, you know, I, love you. I know, I know. And I appreciate it. All right. That's all the time we have for, for this one. Um, thanks, Dan. So this is the allies, uh, podcast. Tune in for the next edition. And again, as always, until then, this is uh, Carmen Farino, and thank you. Thank you.